AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for April 7th, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Uh, today, we've got the all-star studded cast that we usually have. Uh, on the phone, we have Jim Clausing. Thanks for joining us, Jim. Hey, guys. Hey. And uh, on the couch here, we have Matt Kaiser, uh, one of our premier security analysts, as well as Stan Nurlov, uh filling out the uh, couch uh, this week because we don't normally, we're missing Brian today, so... In any event, um, let's move on. Uh, we're going to talk about some old business first, things we've talked about uh, on the show before, um, and we're going to kind of follow up on where they're at now. Uh, so the first story is one that you were looking at, um, uh, Matt, about the GitHub attacks that I think we had talked about yep. probably a few weeks ago. We covered them on the show last week. Okay. Um, for people who, who missed that show, it's, it's, there was a DDoS attack using manipulated websites, people passing through a certain point of, um, of traffic, uh, suspected to be China at that point that were being, um, the traffic was having small amounts of JavaScript injected, right. which would make requests to these target sites. GitHub was one of the primary targets, greatfire.org was the other one, um, and the GitHub site was actually hosting uh, greatfire.org's code, which is the actual target of that DDoS attack. So speculation was that this was some manipulation being performed at the edge of the Great Firewall of China, but there hadn't been any proof yet. We have this blog post from uh, Errata Security, Rob Graham, who's been consistently coming up with some really interesting work, um, and he's shown that using some clever traceroute tricks, uh, he can pinpoint the exact device and the location, not the physical location, but the network location of where this traffic is being manipulated. Turns out that the, the manipulating device actually returns very strange time-to-live values. Okay. Uh, time-to-live being a field that's used in, in um, network traffic to designate how many hops the traffic should be continued to be forwarded for until it's considered that it's, it's either, you know, right. it's misdirected. It's never going to destination. Exactly. Right. Most people are familiar, if you're an IT guy, with traceroute, which is a clever trick of decrementing that TTL field and resending the same request to map out the hops in, a, in a, uh, the, 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 the flow of traffic. What Rob Graham did is he, same kind of idea, using an HTTP connection, but making a full connection and then starting an HTTP session underneath it, but tampering with the TTL fields only after a full connection has been made. So mm. you make this full connection to your target, you get your SYN, SYN ACK, ACK, and then start fooling with the TTL values, which is when um, an HTTP manipulation device would start paying attention. Mm -hmm. um, and it turns out this device would start start setting the values to some crazy thing like 99. So, which is way out of the range of, of probability. If what you're sending out originally is like 18 or 17 and it comes back to you as 99, you know someone's messed with it. Right, yeah, and usually I think a lot of them are like 64 or 48 mm -hmm. as the starting point. It changes like that, with the depending operating, on the operating system. system. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so 99 would be a weird one, yep. right? So he, was, he pinpointed using this technique um, that the device that was tampering with the traffic was somewhere within China Unicom's network space which is, I guess, generally accepted to be where the Great Firewall resides. So, interesting work. Uh, we have the link for that if you want to go and check it out. All right. So basically, long story short, there's some mis mystery device somewhere along the path between, you know, visitors. And from what I had heard, um, 
it kind of sounded like when people would visit Baidu, which is kind of uh, it's the Chinese equivalent, Chinese equivalent of, Google. of Google. They have an analytics um, piece of uh, JavaScript that people can put at the bottom of their web page. It tracks like who's been there, and you can go get stats up on Baidu of you know what do my visitor population look like and whatever. Anyway, it looked like there was maybe some tampering going on there, but now what this kind of looks like is that it wasn't really Baidu that was tampering with it. There's something in between along the way that was, that was uh, doing this uh, tampering with the actual JavaScript that comes back. And that JavaScript that came back was not really the, the Baidu analytics. It was some rogue code that would try to make the client machines go visit GitHub. Yep. Uh, and certain URLs up on GitHub. And uh, uh, it also looked like they excluded China from, so Chinese machines, it was mostly devices outside of China when they would visit and come in, they would hit this whatever mystery device, get this rogue traffic back, and then start attacking, well not attacking, but they'd start making web requests to, to GitHub well, uh, and some other places, I guess, too, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. those those were all the known facts as of last week. It's it's to, it's this story that's pointing to exactly where the Yeah, right. Are. There's a little bit more uh, unraveling there of um, it doesn't look like it was Baidu that was necessarily tampered with here, but something along the way, on the way in, um, uh, on the network route, right? Right. So, interesting. Hard to prove still, but um, <laughs> there's, you know, a lot of people are speculating, what's, what's the deal with this attack? We know that what was attacked here are the New York Times uh, GitHub repository. It's like basically a copy of the New York Times articles that in gets Chinese. put up on, in yep. Chinese, that gets put up there. Mm -hmm. um, and the other one was that greatfire.org, right? That, uh, I'm not sure what, what that one does, but it's it's an anti-censorship organization. Okay, anti-censorship. So, obviously, those two things being targeted, news and censorship. You know, probably news about China and what's going on from an uh, from a uh, Western point of view. Uh, interesting that it was, uh, you know, being tampered with there. So, mm -hmm. uh, thanks for the update on that one. Sure. I guess we'll we'll keep an eye on that. And it is a good article because he does go into the details. It's it's worth the read. Because he explains how he used traceroute, and if you're not familiar with it, how he determined that that was the case there. Mm -hmm. um, that there's something in the middle that you really can't see. So story number two, this is something we talked about probably, I want to say last year sometime, late last year, right? Uh, about TrueCrypt. And uh, I think, Jim, you were looking into this one. Uh, can you fill us in on where TrueCrypt is at now? Yeah, thanks, John. Um, yeah, it was sometime in the middle of last year when the uh, the original TrueCrypt authors decided they were giving up on the project and told people not to use it anymore. And this was a short time before that, actually. I believe the, the Open Crypto Audit Project had actually started auditing the code. Now they've come back with their final report one of the, the main guys who participated in the audit, Matthew Green, a cryptographer and a research professor at Johns Hopkins, posted a, a blog post last week on cryptographyengineering.com, which gave his read of, uh, of their results. They, there's a full, uh, full report out there, which I have read through, and if you're interested, feel free to read through that. But the the long and short of it is they didn't find anything seriously wrong. There were a couple of minor 
um, glitches that they thought ought to be fixed. One of them had to do with how the uh, random number generator works in on Windows platform. Um, if the Windows crypto API doesn't give back the proper results, it continues, and it, since it's got some other sources of randomness, it it continues when it probably ought to quit and ask you to restart. And there was another issue, potential issue with the AES code that might allow um, cache timing attacks. You know, if if the bad guys were on the same system watching you, they might be able to figure out some stuff. But basically, um, the result of the audit was, you know, there were no significant flaws found, no hidden backdoors. You know, the NSA doesn't appear to have any backdoors into the code or anything like that. And in fact, uh, Bruce Schneier in, in his blog post uh, right after the results were uh, posted, he said nothing in there that would prevent him from continuing to use it. So you know, if the guys who really understand crypto are going to continue to use it. It's good enough for me to continue to use it. I was still using it anyway. But, uh, yeah, TrueCrypt is uh, it's a pretty good piece of software. Okay, well, if it's good enough for you, then it's good enough for me. Um, I guess we should mention that, uh, I don't know if we actually said, that, but TrueCrypt is a disk encryption uh, piece of software. It's for those people who might be watching the show and not know what the heck we're talking about. Um, but... Uh, uh, a lot of people use it. It's a free tool, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's free. And the, and the, one of the nice things about it is that it's cross-platform. So right. you can um, you know, you can encrypt a, a volume on a Linux box and take it to a, a Windows box and you could open it up on a, a Mac. Uh, so that was one of the things that, one of the reasons why I've continued to use it is when the TrueCrypt authors, who remained anonymous right to the end, when they uh, brought their brought the project to an end, you know, they said, "Well, just go use BitLocker." Well, that's fine if you if you're only worried about encrypting volumes on Windows boxes. But the nice one of the nice things about TrueCrypt was that it was cross-platform. So, you know, I have a, a four terabyte USB drive here that I have encrypted with TrueCrypt that I can you know, that I can open up on a Linux box, on a Windows box, on a Mac, and use it on, on any of those. Right. So free and very powerful cross-platform, so hence why a lot of people use it, and um, it's a good thing that it's, you know, we got the green light on it to start using it again. Uh, for anybody who, who stopped using it or was worried when the story came out, I wasn't that worried but I'm glad to see that this audit's complete and uh, that it looks like they've got the blessing that everything looks okay. Yeah, I, I wasn't all that worried either. And so I, 7.1a was the last version that they released before they said you know, 7.1b or whatever was basically saying don't use this anymore. 7.1a is the version that uh, was the last released version and that you know had full functionality and that's the one i've continued to use all along right, right. did you have something yeah, i was going to say that i know plenty of people who rely on this for business purposes as well you know if you have confidential data that belongs to a, cost, a customer 
Um, you want to be able to say that you know you're keeping their data at rest, secure, right. you know, as 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 much as you can. So this is a, a, a keystone of that. Right. And I, I also wanted to say uh, I know one of the guys who helped pre prepare the report. So, hi Tom, nice work. <laughs> All right, great. Um, so the next story, and no spoiler, Stan, because you know Game of Thrones uh, season. I don't even know what season we're in now, but the next season starts up this Sunday. So uh, I'm a big fan of it, and uh, I don't want you to. You know, tell us any secrets, even though this has nothing to do with it, other than the name. <laughs> so uh, the Direwolf campaign, I guess, is a new malware campaign out there. And Direwolf for Game of Thrones people is, it's a Direwolf. It's a kind of wolf that appears. John, you're our Jon Snow today, because you're bringing us the Direwolf. <laughs> nobody will get, anybody who watches Game of Thrones will understand that, but nobody else will. Well, you had me lost a little bit, because <laughs> I don't watch Game of Thrones. Uh, I heard it's a great show, so maybe I should start watching it. Um, in this campaign, uh, actually, so it's a paper by uh, IBM, uh, so it's a great, uh, they have a, a PDF document that we're going to give you a link to, and they have like an overarching high-level overview as well uh, that describes this malware campaign. Uh, it's, soft, it's malicious software that I think has been discussed in the past, but just the technique that was used is very interesting. Uh, so uh, to start, uh, you get a spearfish, uh, that contains the Eupatre malware. Now, is it a spearfish or just a kind of fish, general fish? I, I guess they call it spearfish, but it could be, I guess it could be any kind of fish. The thing that they did concentrate on in, in this article uh, to describe this campaign, they did talk about specific types of people who were targeted. People who have access to accounts, uh, bank accounts with uh, large sums of money that, that usually do a lot of uh, transactions and things like that. So. In a way, I guess you could classify that as spear phishing because it's really it's targeted. Uh, but in any case, you get this malware fish, and uh, uh, it contains the Upatre malware. And once you have that installed and it runs for a little bit, you get another component, which is this um, dire malware, or I think some people call it Direza. Right. Uh, and that's where the dire wolf, uh, I guess, campaign comes from. Um, so once you get that malware, it's pretty well known as a banking Trojan type malware. What it does is it's, I guess it has a couple of tricks up its sleeve, but one of the tricks that it has is it sits in your browser. So like if you use Firefox or Internet Explorer, it, it works as a plugin into that and it intercepts all of the communications you have with like your banking websites or your social media accounts, anything that would be, you know, encrypted with SSL or anything like, or anything really, any website you visit that is of interest to the attacker. So they won't just look at any old thing. They really were interested in banking information. Uh, so if you visit a website that they're interested in. And uh, is that like via some kind of config file or something? Yeah, they have something some sort of a configuration. Okay. I think uh, the article mentioned something like 100 or more uh, banks that these guys were interested Zeus in. Zeus would do the same kind of thing, the yeah. old Zeus Trojan that people yeah. are familiar with. Okay, exactly. go on. Sorry to interrupt. No, you, no, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what happens is you, as you visit the page, uh, the malware actually might change the content of the page that's returned back to you. Mm -hmm. So if you, you know, if you go to the banking website, you try to log in, they might send you back something else. And this is also not a new technique. This technique has been around for a, for a long time. What's interesting here, what I thought was interesting, is if you're on, if your bank that you bank with uh, is on their list, what's going to happen is they're going to return to you a page that says something like. Uh, you know, our site is undergoing maintenance, but if you'd like to complete your transaction, here's a 1-800 number that you can call that uh, will let you complete the transaction. So the, the victims call, 
and they're social engineered basically. So a lot of these transactions they require because they're I guess you know a lot of money. They, it's maybe two-factor or, or some kind of special authentication me measures. And so you're basically working through this third party who is probably doing that on, on the other hand. Uh, on the other side, he's actually logging into your bank legitimately, or I guess illegitimately, and uh, conducting a transaction. And so they could, I think in the article they mentioned like anywhere between 500000 to $1.5 million dollars. Uh, that they would then extract from your account right after you hung up the phone. Uh, they would do some kind of like a, I guess the bad guys know how to do this, a money laundering kind mm -hmm. of thing where right, they money send your money yeah, out to a whole bunch of places and then it comes back and spins around. I don't know how those things work, but uh, eventually the, the bottom line is you lose your money. Um, and another thing they mentioned in, in this article is that they'll also hit your organization or you with a DOS attack or a DDoS attack, so kind of like misdirect you uh, away from the issue. So while you're dealing after they've done this transfer, after they've done the transfer, so while you're dealing possibly with this DOS or DDoS attack, um, then you know you're possibly not paying attention right away to this other issue of uh, you know your banking transactions going into the wrong uh, place. And I know earlier you mentioned uh, that a trick like this had been used in the past. Well, a, a variation of that. So basically, this one's an even more different variation because we've talked a lot about these man-in-the-middle types of things. Zeus would do this too, where, but what Zeus was doing is when you go visit your banking website, it might ask for your login ID and your password, but the Zeus Trojan would whoop, insert another form field in there that says you got to put your social security number in too or right. something. And then they would collect that. They would harvest this um, extra information that the bank really didn't have on its login form but they're modifying it. This direwolf is interesting, or dire, is interesting because what you're saying is instead of trying to even, you know, add form fields or whatnot, they just, when you go to visit your banking website, they give you a page that says, hey, the bank's temporarily down. If you need support, call us at this number. And now they're getting you on the phone. People tend to think that a phone is more trustworthy if they're talking to a human being as right. opposed to a computer, I guess. Right. Um, I don't trust anybody. So uh, if you're on the phone, especially if I'm told by my bank to call, I might, I don't know. Uh, it's a little hard to tell these days because I often do a lot of banking after hours. And right. you, that's usually when the maintenance period right, is. Right, system maintenance. And they usually that. tell you, hey, your transaction cannot be completed at this time. If you have any questions, call this number. And this is exactly that kind of situation. And I mean, when you call uh, support, it, you know, they could be anywhere, and we're kind of used to that as well. With outsourcing and things like that, they don't always have to be where you think they are. And so if you call somebody, and I don't know how these people, you know, what kind of, uh, where they really come from or how they interview you. But yeah, I'm wondering how good of a natural English language they speak. If exactly. they sound like, oh, I'm, I'm talking to somebody that like, uh, is in the U.S. Or Peggy from USA Prime Credit. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, right, but it would probably be pretty easy to fool somebody, especially you're making them call you. So it's not you didn't cold call them or you didn't insert anything. They're, right. This person is legitimately interested in doing this transaction. They're calling you. They already feel safe and secure that they're talking to the bank. Because right. how else would I get this? They think number? they visited their bank website and it told them they were out of visit or they're out of service for a period of time and there's the phone number. Let me just call them. Why would I look up their phone number 
to verify that that phone number is really them, right? right? Exactly. And um, well, I mean, once the computer is compromised like that, it's hard to say, hey, I should be able, you know, anything you look up on the computer now is possibly going to be illegitimate. Right, uh, right. So maybe they are going to, you know, maybe in the next version they might replace all the phone numbers with this illegitimate one. Right. So even that's not a, a, a good way to get around this fake phone number. Yeah, one of the, you know, one of the things that I always told people, you know, told my parents and that never call the toll-free number that gets left on your voicemail or your answering machine, you know, always if they claim it's from your credit card company, you know, look at the back of the card and call the number on there, not the one they left on the answering machine. But in this case, you know, as you said, they're they're in your your computer, so you can't look it up on the computer. Now, if you've you know if you've got a credit card or something with that bank, you can call it that number and try to get them that way. But yeah, this is a a little more insidious even than than the old you know phone calls that used to get you know claiming there was suspicious activity on your credit card or whatever right where they called you directly yeah. right right it's pretty scary i mean i suspect they i mean it's also very targeted i don't know how many people you know how big this operation is or how many people they're able to target but you think they'd have a pretty good success rate you know, once they get you with the spearfish and the malware, and now you have the phone number, and you're already calling, you're probably going to be a victim of this. Right, right. There's probably a very good return for the bad guys. I wonder if you could track these guys through the call centers they're using. I mean, either they've got their own small gang of guys doing it, or they've contracted out to a third party. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I kind of wonder how many, you know, you've got call centers, like when you have those... Um, those Windows IT scams where they say, I call them from Microsoft and you've got an infection. I've often wondered if they're actually, the people who are doing it believe in what they're doing or they're you know, not knowledgeable enough to know that they're scamming somebody. Right. I, I guess it would be hard to justify that you're like transferring funds out of this person. I don't know exactly how it works, but yeah. Mm -hmm. And he, I, I've seen some YouTube videos where people post the, the scams kind of in action mm -hmm. and it seems like the people who are doing it kind of know that they're doing something that they're trying to trick the people oh, so if somebody says you're trying I'm tr you're trying to scam me they'll get like mad at you or yeah something they'll get like mad at you I think in one case I saw on YouTube uh, somebody was saying okay I found you out you're trying to scam me and he was like oh well you should pay me because you don't know what I did to your computer and things like that so some yeah. of these guys do know what they're doing um, and I'm pretty sure Whoever you're calling knows what they're doing. Okay. Uh, I doubt that they're not fully, you know, not complicit. They're probably very complicit. Um, I don't know how widespread this is or what kind of banks it, it targets, but definitely uh, reading this paper will give you some background information. And there's a PDF that goes along with it that has some indicators, IP addresses, and domain names that okay. people can look for on their network to see if they're infected with this, uh, I guess, uh, with this specific version of this malware. All right, great, thanks. Um, you know, just as an aside as well, I know that this Dyer family of malware, it's kind of been around for a little while at least, and I see a lot of chatter on some of the industry sharing threat intelligence groups about Dyer and indicators and whatnot. So that PDF is a good start if you're a member of any of these other kind of collaborative sharing groups, especially FSISAC, which is the financial services ISAC. Um, I know that they've been chattering a lot about Dyer 
uh, because obviously it's targeting, right. you know, it's targeting, exactly targeting them. them, so to speak. They're, they're customers, let's say, yeah. So, okay. Um, so uh, next story we have up here is uh, about um, uh, replay attacks against credit cards. This is an interesting one. You were looking at this one, Matt? Yep. So another gem from Krebs on Security. Um, he found someone advertising um, in a cyber criminal underground this software or capability that they're calling Revolution. And it seems to be an attack against the EMV payment system, but only against certain um, deployments of it. So EMV is the, the advanced, it's, um, it stands for EuroPay MasterCard Visa. It's a standard right. developed to use smart card chips to authenticate payments. Um, and they're, they're hopefully rolling it out here in the US soon. And in, in particular, the, the attack seems to be targeted towards United States uh, financial institutions that are somewhere in the transition of moving from MagStripe to EMV. Right. Um, Europe has already kind of gone through and worked out the kinks for this sort of thing, but the U.S. banks are still kind of figuring out the right way to do it because it's it's essentially a, a, a PKI, a, a public key infrastructure problem because each card has you know its own chip and these things run code. They run in this case Java. Um, and they're actually doing things, you know, signing certificates, validating certificates, but in somewhere in this this chain. So, what's happening is apparently there's different deployment styles of EMV, and you've got what's called a static data authentication, uh, dynamic data authentication, and there's a combined version, which is the highest highest of security. Static is when you you're authenticating your transactions. Every time you, the, the card sends data, it will sign. The transaction and it'll increment a single it's like a, a counter saying this mm -hmm. is how many transactions i've performed and this is me and this is i've signed it so it's me saying this is the number of transactions please allow this transaction right, right. whereas dynamic um every time you do that again it signs it differently and it uses some sort of either time-based or uh, transaction-based changing value okay so to prevent replay attacks almost like an rsa kind of key some unique thing that changes over time well they are so using speak. rsa as the uh, algorithm for this signing, um, I'm not really sure which aspect you're, you're talking about, but they are changing it every time to prevent replay, which right. is the idea. Um, it seems like some banks are still using the older S static version, which is easier to deploy, I guess. There's certain things about PKI that Well, cheaper make, too, right? You don't have to reissue all these cards with these probably somewhat expensive chips in them. Right. right? So, I mean, think, I think that's where the blind spot is. Um, it's not sure, we're not sure what this revolution capability is, uh, but it seems to be related to being able to load your own software onto the cards or tamper with that counter value that gets sent so that you can just say, okay, this is another transaction, same counter value, don't worry about it. And some banks apparently are not checking the counter value, which is part of that transaction, mm -hmm. probably to you know work out some of the kinks in the early stages of, you know, is it fraud or is it just some sort of data error that we're getting? Because it's, it's not a simple system to set up. So it sounds like the... Um, the criminals have found some way of abusing the system in order to continue to create valid transactions with the same uh, index number. Right, right. So it's interesting. If, I learned a lot about EMV, trying to understand exactly what was going on here. I think I found a pretty good uh, white paper explaining some of the high-level concepts, and I've, I've, uh, I hopefully it'll make it into the show notes for this week. So one of the things I saw about this as well when I was reading it is the malicious actors, they would take these stolen credit card numbers and other information and they were submitting requests to certain banks that will accept EMV mm -hmm. but maybe don't really have it implemented well on the back end and what they're doing is when they submit it they set some kind of indicator so they take a 
they looked at what a legitimate EMV one looks like as mm -hmm. it goes across the wire, and then they just inject this you know stolen credit card information and send it along. The bank got this you know request for money, and um, or for a transaction, and they looked at it and they said, wait a second, this guy doesn't even have an EMV chip card. Mm -hmm. This doesn't make sense because we haven't deployed these yet. How is one of our customers sending you know credit card information with this EMV chip based version that? You know, we haven't even sent out any cards like that to customers yet. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's how they were tipped off about it. Um, but uh, I guess, and the other thing that they had mentioned is a lot of these uh, financial institutions or banks that um, in the U.S. that will accept EMV, they expect them to be a more uh, higher trusted type of transaction, less likely to be. Rogue. Oh, so they don't so they're not even monitoring it quite well right now. Yeah. So the bad guys who are pushing through these EMV type requests with static credit card numbers kind of injected into the transaction uh, are getting more of them through because on the back end at the credit card companies, they're not really, they don't have the stuff in place. Like you said, they're not set up quite yet for it all. Mm -hmm. uh, even though they're, they're willing to honor that transaction, they're not, they don't have all this back end uh, infrastructure in place to kind of do the security auditing and whatnot around it. So uh, interesting. I guess once it's deployed properly, I think it's supposed to work pretty well because I don't think they're really hacking the chip so much as they're hacking the transaction and taking advantage of some of the banks not quite being up to speed with what they're supposed to do with these types of transactions yet mm -hmm. or having the process in place to validate them. Like you said, that the count is not you know bogus. Um, of the number of transactions or other indicators therein um, as yeah, part I'm, of the transaction. I'm not sure about that. I read, well, the, it was a, a weird, it wasn't exactly English as the first language, but the person who posted, right, right. there was a screenshot in the Krebs article. Yes, and it sounded right. like he was saying this is a capability specific to certain kinds of cards. Oh, so okay. if, if that's the case, I mean, it may be a matter of being able to load this onto a card and walk into a store and use your EMV card with any pin you want or, or whatever. Oh, okay, interesting. Because so maybe did say you could load on whatever rogue credit card info, right. stolen credit card info into a legitimate card uh, or whatever, a card that has one of these chips on it that you can program it to be the stolen identity, right. whatever. Yep. Is this the same as the chip and pin uh, security or is this slightly yes. different? This is, this is essentially chip and pin, yeah. Okay. There was an article maybe years ago Yep. I think I know what you're thinking about. Yes, yeah. and there was even a YouTube demonstration. But he had to carry on like a, a backpack with, I think, a laptop in it or something like that. Mm -hmm. That was like brute forcing. I was doing something to the card and the reader to get the uh, incorrect mm -hmm. authentications through. You know, that makes me wonder if, if it's specific to those cards. Because each card has, you know, a tiny amount of memory, a microprocessor. It may be specific to the cards because you have to load that code in. And it's more than, you know, a typical card would need. You know, I'm, it's all speculation at this point, right. but it's interesting. Um, I, I'd love to learn more about how this works, but I'm sure once once that gets out, these these companies will hopefully be patching this problem very quickly, or at least moving from SDA to DDA. I mean, I, I heard that, and I, I think this is, tr I'm pretty sure this is correct, but I think that in Europe there was a mandate to push from SDA to DDA by like 2011. I mean, they did have an yeah. earlier start than us, uh, but you know, to be still running the SDA version is, is kind of behind the times, right. no so matter how you slice it. Four years behind the times here. Yeah. 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 But I think things are changing. I just actually a few days ago uh, received a credit card that has the new technology. Mm -hmm. So they're slowly, all of my credit cards are slowly changing over to use the, the chip. 
Well, I guess long, long and short of it is, uh, you know, the more security they try to add to credit cards, you know, it's still, there's, since there's money involved, the bad actors are going to be motivated to try to figure out how to yeah. defeat that system. So um, maybe you're going to stop them for a little while, but they'll probably have to come up with a new system after this one. Because um, like you said, there's probably other ways that they can trick the system that we haven't even thought about yet. Uh, and when there's money, there's motivation. So, yep. Uh, so let's go to the next story. Uh, this is uh, one about some rogue, we've talked about rogue Wi-Fi access points before, but maybe not in this context. So, uh, and it sounds like somebody's got some interesting software out there to help with this problem. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this one, Jim? Yeah, I uh, saw this uh, article on, the, uh, on Tripwire's blog, and it was actually written by Graham Cluley, and he was uh, a blogger that I read fairly frequently. Um, the the evil twin rogue wireless access point problem is uh, is one that's been around for a while. It, you know, basically, somebody sets up an access point that pretends to be an access point that you know, users are familiar with. In you know, say in the enterprise, it uses the same you know name as the as the legitimate ones, but operates on a different channel or um, or even clones the the BSS ID or whatever the tool that he that Graham mentioned in this blog post is called evil AP defender and it's a it's a tool that's out there on github you know you can get the source code for it um, and basically it's designed to initially help you discover um, you know, potentially rogue access points in your enterprise. It will it will look for things like um, an, an AP with a different BSS ID or with the same BSS ID as legitimate ones, but with you know running on different channels or using different cipher suites or different authentication as a tool for for monitoring. You know, this is a good thing if you can alert your network ops folks that somebody has got a, a rogue access point in your, you know, in your enterprise, then you can go out and knock it down. Now, the other side of it is this um, evil AP defender has a, a counterattack um, feature. And that's the one that, you know, there are some people who question the fighting back. Um, but it, basically, it's got a feature that would allow you to launch a denial of service attack back against the rogue access points. So, to potentially try to knock them off the air. I'm not sure exactly how I feel about that part of it, but the the uh, the tools to recognize the rogue access points, um, I think, is a very useful tool in in a lot of enterprises. Whenever you're accessing, you know, critical assets over Wi-Fi, you ought to be using VPN anyway, so that even if the bad guys, you know, can sniff your traffic, all they're getting is the encrypted stuff, and you know, they're not actually able to steal anything or inject anything. Right. True. Yeah, having end to end. Was actually on a recent episode of CSI Cyber. 
that exactly this. Uh, yes, it was actually. Yeah. <laughs> they had exactly this issue, and uh, they had a tool that, as you described, Jim, that actually would help you, um, you know, detect the presence of this uh, huh. of this rogue access point. Now they didn't have a strategy for detecting it. I think uh, uh, I'm not going to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen this episode, but uh, they had a different trick for figuring out where exactly the rogue access point was. Yeah, they had some, some convoluted logic, I think, as to sort of <laughs> suss it out, just guessing. Well, it, the show is, I'm, I'm watching it, and I'm, I'm committed at this point. I watched the first few episodes, and I know I texted a whole bunch of friends, and I said, I can't believe, I cannot believe they put this in a television show, not because it was accurate, but because it was so inaccurate. Right, but right. There's, there's a certain amount of it that they get right that keeps me hooked, and I keep going back and saying, you know, maybe, maybe they'll do this, this one right, and maybe they'll be... But then I also have a, a good laugh at the things they get horribly wrong. Right, right. Well, they got to add interest and drama, you know. It's true. It's not really that exciting like what we do necessarily when we go back to our desk. <laughs> uh, it's certainly not uh, television-worthy. But uh, except for this show, which is oh. you know, the greatest. But, yeah, uh, well, they they managed to solve all of their crimes in forty eight minutes. Oh God, yeah, I wish I wish it was that simple. Without any without <laughs> any process, which is great. And then the the one where they where they tamper with a yeah, at least one of the people on that show should have gone to jail by now. We'll just say that yeah, without spoiling yeah, things. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Oh well. We've segued a little bit here, but still, hey, it's worth checking out. And not that we're, you know, necessarily recommending shows to watch. I haven't watched it myself, but uh, it sounds interesting. So maybe some viewers uh, uh, would be interested in checking it out as well. Mm -hmm. uh, the next story we have is on Anana Box, which actually sounded interesting. I know we've, we've kind of hypothesized about building one of these ourselves mm -hmm. um, for certain types of things uh, in security analysis uh, work. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about this particular product and whether you would recommend it at the moment? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Quick answer is no. Um, I think we may have covered either this or a similar device on the show before. The idea is it's a, basically a tiny travel router proxy mm -hmm. that you connect to, it connects to the internet, and all of your traffic is tunneled through Tor, which ensures that any traffic that you send through it, as long as it doesn't have any personally identifying information in it, is anonymized which is great for people who don't want to have to set up Tor but still want to have the benefits of being anonymous on the internet. Um, so it's kind of had a checkered past. The original version of it had some security flaws. Uh, you couldn't set um, your own Wi-Fi password. So they went back to the drawing board, they got new, uh, new owners, and they've released some of these routers to some of the backers, and it turns out this version is not much better. Uh, you cannot set a Wi-Fi password in this version, which means all of your Wi-Fi traffic is completely in the clear. So anybody nearby can connect to this so access it's not point. And WPA be, encrypted or anything. It's just like nothing. an open Wi-Fi access point. Open Wi-Fi access point with, I believe, a name you can't control. So it's randomized every time, which is a little frustrating if you're trying to use this thing all the time. Right. Turns out that the username and password for this device now, which is hidden on an IPv6 address, not on the IPv4, but if you know the IPv6 okay. for it, you can get to it. That interface as the username and password, okay. which yeah, is we're familiar with that one. Arguably worse, I think. <laughs> so yeah. um, it seems like they haven't learned the lessons that we would expect someone who has gone through this this pain before to learn. Um, they are giving out what they're saying is a free upgrade of a new version of the device to everybody who had one of these affected routers. But basically, they're saying that they have there's no confidence in the old version, and, and rightfully so. Um, I'm a little saddened by this. I. I, I kind of want to support these sort of projects because I think I would love to have one of these of my own. Mm -hmm. um, it's just sad that these are the same kind of 
rookie IoT mistakes, and I, I classify this as an IoT device because it's a small embedded network device. Well, not only that, but it's a device that's supposed to be improve your security. Right. And yet, the, some of the this is kind of a glaring example of well, you had a little lapse in in security here, having a, a default password for root as which is probably one of the first top 10 that anybody's ever going to try if they're trying to hack in. A lot of devices is their default password. I think the guy who did the, the assessment, uh, Lars Thompson, actually tried that third. Oh, okay. So it didn't take that long. And right. then he also did a firmware analysis and dumped some of that stuff and made it publicly available if anybody really cares to take a look at the, uh, the compiled code. Okay, but again, I, I love these sorts of stories where you've got a small device that, I don't know, I, I got a thing for, for routers and switches and networking gear, so this one was, was pretty cool. Right. Yeah, one of the things that I find attractive about this type of device, you know, assuming it was designed properly and didn't have all these, well, the few holes that they managed to find, is when you set up Tor on your PC or your Linux machine, um, a lot of you're not quite sure how much of that is going through Tor. So like your DNS queries might be going out through your regular DNS, mm -hmm. and then you're, you get the IP address, and then you make a connection to some website, but you're doing it through Tor or whatever at that point. So you can get some little bleed over, even though you're using Tor, uh, but I would imagine that you don't really have an option to go any other way for any type of thing, except through the Tor network with this, because you're you know, it's handling the routing of all of your traffic, not just you know, like TCP connections or web connections that you're trying to, you know, create through Tor. So yep. um, it's a it's a good idea. I don't know, you know, Tor is not, not no, notorious for being the speediest network. Right. If you're doing a lot That's of true. high bandwidth traffic, I don't know that I would use Tor for very much. But um, it is, a, you know, it's good for anonymizing your traffic for various things. Uh, so this type of device, uh, makes it simple for the layperson, for sure. Mm -hmm. there, yeah. there was actually, um, there's, there's a couple competing devices. The, the person who put together the, the audit that um, I, I posted the link to mm -hmm. um, actually is working on a competing device. So that's, oh, that's you know, it's, it's interesting that he's doing that, but at the same time, you know, if it A little conflict the, of interest there, perhaps. Yeah, but, but if it improves the overall security of the devices in the space, I'm, I'm kind of for that. Right. Um, the other thing I want to mention is that the, there are, free versions of, of things that you can build if you're technically inclined to do so. Uh, the Grook has the portal project, with the code for which is up on GitHub. And it's, it's basically taking uh, one of many small travel routers and you flash a custom firmware on it and it does the same kind of I think, this idea. Uh, the other one is um, the Onion Pie tool, which I think Make Magazine put together. Mm -hmm. Or at least it came out in a Make Magazine that I read recently. It may have been developed by somebody else, maybe Lady Ada, one of the people in that space. Same idea, but using a Raspberry Pi mm -hmm. with a wireless antenna on one end and a, a, a Ethernet cable on the other to, to push all your Wi-Fi traffic through Tor. Mm -hmm. So if there are people who are interested in that sort of thing and playing with the, you know, the ideas in this space, other things to look at. I can't say right, that these are any more options, right? Yeah, I can't yeah. say that these are any more secure in terms of the device itself being attackable than what we just saw, but they're starting points for someone who wants to have the ability. Right, right. Okay, interesting. So let's move on to the internet weather and see what's been going on. Uh, not too many real big news stories uh, here. So this first chart here is our top 10 most probe ports. This was basically the most number of probes, irrespective of how many devices were actually doing it. So one device could send 80 billion scan probes and it would show up high in here, uh, as opposed to some coordinate activity. 
so I don't really, I'm not a big fan of the most probes because it doesn't really show you trends as much. But what we do see is um, 22 TCP is your SSH. That's usually at the top. We know there's a lot of brute forcing activity going on. Looking for things like these IoT-based devices, I bet you money that the one you were just talking about has an SSH port on it uh, <laughs> for administration. You know, this is the kind of thing that these actors are standing for when they're going against 22 TCP. Uh, 135 TCP is your, you know, NetBIOS type stuff going on there. Uh, 1900 UDP is SSDP, Simple Service Discovery Protocol. We've been seeing a lot more um, distributed denial of service type attacks, reflection attacks, uh, similar to your DNS reflection attacks with SSDP. Still not scaled to the point that they're they're anywhere near the size of DNS or NTP type reflection attacks, but still, it's a port that's out there that since it's UDP, you can do reflection across it, spoof source, and have it you know bounce off to its victim. So people are looking for these so that they can use them as part of their attack suite when they want to do reflective-based attacks. 445 TCP SMB, that's uh, moved up a couple of points, but most of this stuff is pretty steady. 8080 TCP, uh, we're going to take a look at that one in a little more detail to see. It's moved up three positions, but it's actually been very gradually rising up here more than it had been. 23TCP Telnet, so that's another one very similar to SSH that is also running on a lot of these IoT-type devices, your home DVRs, your you know, uh, disk storage devices, network-attached storage-type things, uh, home routers, etc. cetera, uh, still have Telnet open, and uh, people are scanning for it. 80 TCP web, people are always scanning for that. There could be various reasons for that. 1433 TCP, um, Microsoft SQL Server, that's uh, moved up four positions. Um, but it's the, the scanning activity is pretty steady on that one, so I didn't bring a chart up on this one because it's, it's been elevated and high for a while, but no significant upturns or downturns. It's just been more than, uh, you know, a little bit more than, than usual. Uh, remote desktop protocol, we always see activity on that. Again, that's looking for interactive access. You got all these bad actors out there trying to, they'll brute force their way into those two, and there's some worms that do that as well. Like Mordo has been around for years that looks for RDP-based devices and tries to brute force their way in with password guessing. Uh, and then 443 TCP, um, notorious for various reasons. People might be scanning it, like Heartbleed and other things that are still lingering around, or other types of, what's the, the freak one that's out uh, that came out. So there's other uh, vulnerabilities people are scanning for in 443 TCP lately as well. Although it's moved down uh, quite significantly as compared to last week. And we don't know if it's they're scanning for vulnerabilities in SSL or in the underlying sites. Yes, we don't know. Running on 443. Yeah, we just know that they're just scanning on that particular port for this. Uh, this is, uh, so instead of looking at, actually maybe I didn't pull up the 8080 chart, or maybe it's later, but uh, instead of looking at what we uh, had on that previous chart, I was going to say I want to take a look at what we don't see that we used to see a lot. And one of the things that I thought was interesting is port 9064 TCP. We had talked about that a lot in the beginning of this year, a little bit in the last half of uh, uh, last year, where we went from nothing up to you know, quite significant amounts of scanning, uh, you know, peaking up here at 250 million scan flows per hour, uh, this is what I never really was able to, I know it's a proxy port, but I don't know why there's so many proxies hanging out on 9064 TCP, uh, but there are. Um, you can find them in proxy lists out on the internet, you know, some of these people who collect lists up, and uh, I don't know if there's a specific tool or a specific 
piece of proxy software like Squid is you know notorious for hanging out on 3128. I don't know why 9064 TCP is so popular. But the thing I thought was interesting is when the past week or uh, week and a half or so, uh, it's really gone back down to nothing again. So whoever was scanning for that has kind of given up, or maybe they got all the information they need. Most of it's coming from China. We know China scans a lot for proxies because it helps them, you know, get access to things that you know basically anonymize their traffic. So interesting that there's a downturn on that one. I'm kind of curious to see if it comes back up again at some point, uh, but uh, I guess we'll find out. So this is the top 10 most sources probing. I tend to like this chart a lot better because it means that there's a lot of devices doing things in unison or in some kind of coordinated fashion, which typically is indicative of botnet-related activity or some other type of botnet-ish-like thing going on. Uh, 3.3 ICMP, uh, I think that's... Uh, that might be an echo request port unreachable. I think that's a reply with important reachable. That could just be, you know, backscatter from scanning activity. Probably not significant other than it might have something to do with some of these UDP ones because I think they send back ICMP really unreachables when you make a UDP request. 445 TCP, we already talked about. SMB 80 echo requests is up a little bit. These are probably not, the ICMP ones are probably not really that security relevant. 27015 UDP is gaming related. That's up a point or up one position from last week. That's really not security relevant. Although I will mention that 27015 UDP can be used for reflection attacks as well. I don't know how much uh, amplification you get with that, but I know that there, and this is um, Valve's Half-Life gaming server, uh, typically runs on 27015 UDP. And um, since it is UDP, you can use it as a spoofed and you can do some reflection off of it, but I haven't really seen a lot of attacks with that yet, but they might just be doing recon to find them uh, so they get a list together. Yeah, well, and I do find it interesting that that's clear up to number four now. I mean, I remember when it first crept into the charts early last year, I think, and now it's up to number four, most sources probing. Right. And it's really, uh, this is a weird port because I'm familiar with... Half-Life and how it works. And when you bring your game browser up, it almost acts very much like a scanning thing because it gets a list of all of these game servers that are out there. It could be thousands. And then it goes and tries to reach each one of them. So, you know, even though that's legitimate activity, it's somebody running a game client trying to get status of how fast can I talk to each one of these servers that are on my list. It looks like scanning activity to us. So it's hard to differentiate between that legitimate activity um, versus someone scanning it for potentially malicious purposes or reflection. So um, I'm not aware if there's any new games that would make this surge up, like you said, Jim, uh, higher than it had used, used to be. But um, it's probably one to watch, especially to see if there is reflection attacks going on there. Uh, 6881 UDP is BitTorrent. I'm not quite sure why this is pretty much static at uh, position 6. I'm not quite sure why that one uh, is in here other than since it is peer-to-peer, -peer, there's probably, it can also very similarly look like uh, random scanning because peer-to-peer, -peer, you're talking to a lot of different peers uh, on those ports, so that's probably why that's in there. Although, you might be able to reflection off of this one as well. Pretty much any UDP, you technically could. If somebody's listening and you know how to ask the question correctly, you could get some reflected traffic back. ADTCP is up. Again, this one didn't really look um, like it... Uh, is up that significantly compared to volumetrics of what we've seen before. 
The real interesting ones, in my opinion, are these 4183 and 4143 UDPs, which you guys talked about last week. I wasn't here for the show, but I was digging around a little bit in this one, too. So we've got some interesting slides here. Uh, not quite sure what to attribute this to yet, other than it's probably some kind of peer-to-peer -peer mechanism for talking. Uh, but we're going to take a look at a slide in a second. And then 8080 TCP um, is the last one. I think I have a slide on it, but if I don't, this is, yeah, actually, I know I do. It's in here. Here it is. So let's talk about the 8080 TCP first. Um, this is HTTP alternate. So it's well known as being used as kind of an alternate port. You know, normally 80, port 80 is your web traffic. But 8080 TCP is used quite frequently as um, uh, an alternate port, a lot of times for proxies or administrative interfaces for various types of things. Like Tomcat, I know I mentioned that one before. Um, is used quite a bit on um, port 8080, the administrative interface. And uh, I think some of these other um, like web management tools might also listen on 8080. I can't remember the name of them off the top of my head, but there's a couple other tools for like managing your web server that sit on port 8080. The takeaway here is that there is kind of a trend line that was kind of pretty you know, static around the, it looks like 500 scan SIPs per hour. We're looking at scan SIPs here, not the number of scan flows. And then it's kind of very dramatically gone up. There's this upward trend line here reaching into the 3,500 scan SIPs per hour, if I'm reading this correctly. Uh, so there's definitely an upturn of coordinated scanning activity on this. What I would say is, I've said this before, if you're running Tomcat, if you're running uh, ColdFusion Web Server, not that this runs on 8080, a lot of those things, a lot of those types of web suites have administrative ports running on these alternate types of ports that people are looking for. It shouldn't be open to the internet. Close them if you have them directly connected to the internet. Or at least filter access to them so that only you can get to them or some trusted subnet range that you know you're always going to come from when you go to reach the administrative port for these types of services. So let's look at 4143 UDP and 4183 UDP. This is a real interesting one. We don't really know what it is, although I have some packets that we're going to look at in a second here. The 4143 UDP appears that it's mostly sources in the United States, for the most part, scanning for that particular port. And 4183 is mostly ones in Latin America and Europe. When we did a couple of poking around at a few of them just to try to fingerprint them, a lot of them look like various types of IoT type devices, these little embedded devices. But there's no real clear, to me, there's no real clear um, commonality between all of them. You know, uh, a lot of them don't have any ports open that I can see. Um, and the ones that we do see don't have the same types of ports open or they're not the same types of devices. So I'm kind of curious how these are getting compromised, uh, if, they, if this is a compromise. I don't really know what this is yet, other than the fact that all this scanning activity you know, we went from pretty much nothing up to 5,000 scan sources per hour. It all started, I guess, what is this, the 26th, March 26th? And there was nothing, absolutely nothing prior to that. So that's an interesting one to keep an eye out. When I took a look at, uh, here's a, a picture of the geographic distribution. So you can see on 4143 that there's a very heavy concentration in North America. Not to say that there isn't some smattering in other parts of the world, but it's very concentrated in North America. And then when you look at the 4183, it's not hardly anything in North America, and most of it's located in South America and concentrations in Europe there. So why that is, I don't know, because we don't really know what this is yet. Um, if anybody out there knows, uh, please write to us. We'll give you the address at the end of the show. 
uh, we'd like to know a little bit more about this. But um, to me, this looks like some kind of peer-to-peer -peer thing because uh, we don't know anything that really runs on these ports that would be listening. So it's kind of curious. I'd like to find out more about what that is. Here's a picture of the um, uh, a couple of packets just to show you what's actually in the payload. I call this the Mac and the Mad packets. So on port 4143, it's just got 16 bytes of payload. I've obfuscated out the IP addresses involved in this activity, but um, or I just kind of blurred them out. There's really nothing intelligible in here to me. I don't recognize this pattern. The word MAC appears in the middle. Uh, that could just be coincidence that whatever that byte, whatever this message is, it might not really mean anything. It might just be part of uh, a binary happy accident kind of thing that happened there. Uh, but on 4183, the message has MAD, and there's a few different byte patterns in here too. So they have a B7 in the fourth byte, and uh, 1C instead of F4, uh, 0B instead of 0A. So what to make of that, I don't know. But again, if anybody else recognizes this, uh, that watches the show, recognizes this, this byte pattern traffic, um, we'd like to find out more about what this actually is. And that's the show for today. Thanks, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at threattrack at list.att.com. Uh, you can also find ThreatTrack on the ATT Tech channel. That's att.com slash threattrack, as well as on YouTube and iTunes. Uh, we'd also like you to follow us on Twitter. Our handle on Twitter is at ATT Security. Uh, thank you, Jim. Uh, thanks, Matt. Thanks, Stan, for joining me again. Uh, I'm John Hogelboom. We'll be back next week with a new episode until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.